the only thing that correlates to long-term outcomes are consistently following whatever approach it is you want to follow. You're listening to the Fitness Industry Podcast, powered by Australian Fitness Network. For articles, resources, and inspiration to grow your fitness business and career, go to fitnessnetwork.com.au, where you can also find a huge range of online courses, many of them accredited for CECs and other professional development credits, with up to a massive 30% savings for members of Australian Fitness Network. And for an amazing weekend of face-to-face learning, be sure to register for Phylex, the main event on the fitness industry calendar at phylex.com.au. Dietitian and sport nutritionist Brian St-Pierre has worked with hundreds of athletes and everyday clients. Here, he chats with the fitness industry podcast's Oliver Kitchingman about the client problems that poor food choices solve, the power of consistency over novelty, and adapting human behaviours without actively taking things away. Brian, welcome to the Fitness Industry Podcast. Hey, Ali, thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. Brian, there are a million and one diets and eating strategies for fat loss, as we all know. Which ones really work? <laughs> okay, it's a big question. And, you know, when we say work, we're not like, how do I get shredded in a week? How do I lose all this weight? You don't eat anything and you starve yourself. What works in the long term? What's sustainable? I mean, in our view, a lot of things work, right? And a lot of things don't work. It really depends on the individual. So, I mean, the in nutrition, the answer is almost always, it depends. But ultimately, you know, there is no one single universal approach that works for different complex messy humans, right, who live in a complex world and have complicated lives. So there's not one singular approach. And there are lots of things that work. So one of the ways we try to teach people to, to coach nutrition is to one, like be a nutritional agnostic, recognize you can help people eat better, whether they're paleo or keto, plant-based. Most, I wouldn't say all, I mean, there are some constructs out there that I would steer you away from, but most dietary approaches, when well-constructed, can be really successful long-term for people so long as they enjoy them and can comfortably follow them. But to do that, we would have coaches work on using what we'd call like a behavior-based model. Mm -hmm. So rather than focusing on the macros or focusing on being a keto coach or a paleo coach or what have you, you you can help people eat through any type of different dietary style by building particular skills, right? By focusing on behaviors and building skills through daily practices. Right, so that way you can help people eat better no matter what their approach is. Whether they eat paleo, you're still going to help them do what? Eat more protein, eat more vegetables, eat more slowly, pay more attention to their internal like hunger and appetite cues, eat more minimally processed whole foods. So you're doing those same things, whether it's paleo, keto, plant-based. Yes, there are some differences in like the amounts of things you eat, but you're still focusing on appetite awareness. You're still focusing on minimally processed whole foods. Right? There's a lot more continuity between different approaches then there are actual differences when you when you take that big view and you look out so we teach people to be like behavior based and focus on building fundamental skills with clients that can be applied to any dietary approach so would you say one of the biggest challenges is that a lot of people obviously they're they're getting inspired to try out the latest eating patterns eating styles you know they might be going paleo they might be doing intermittent fasting something when that's so much is completely opposite to the way they've been eating so far they because they're not they're not eating well as it were or making the good food choices already they're making poor food choices and then they're trying to go completely to the other extreme so it's just you're setting yourself up for failure when you're trying to go that different to the way you have been living yeah i mean oftentimes clients 
clients also don't know what they don't know, right? So they just hear various things from TV experts or social influencers, and you can go paleo and eat really well and have it be done successfully. But in our view, that's only going to happen reliably when you've built those fundamental skills to support that eating approach long term. So by focusing on consistency over novelty. Oftentimes, novel things sell, man. They're sexy. They're compelling. That's why there's a new diet book every single day, right? It's gluten. It's sugar. It's now it's the carnivore diet. I mean, you name it. There is something I would say, quote unquote, new, because there's really nothing new. It's all, if you really go back in time and look at the timeline of nutrition recommendations, this stuff just repeats and recycles and in different packages and forms. But when you look at, okay, what are the commonalities they all share? And you can help clients see what those commonalities are. They can start to discern, you know, what's actually causing this approach to be beneficial and what is just the sexy wrapping it's been placed in. Right. So we try to help clients see that and to focus on what they can control in their behaviors and to build those fundamental skills because they can do paleo or maybe not so much carnivore. There's so many restrictions there, but it can be a short term approach for, for certain situations. We can get into that if you'd like. But for the most part, you know, we're trying to help clients focus on consistency over novelty. When you look at the research and you look at it in our experience where we've coached or helped coach over 100,000 people at this point. And our own internal research aligns with the evidence that shows, you look at some of the research and the meta-analyses on, in research reviews on paleo or, you know, adjusting carbs and fats, low carb, high fat, high carb, what have you. The only thing that correlates to long-term outcomes are consistently following whatever approach it is you want to follow. So it's consistency more than, regardless of the tool or approach chosen. Right. So we help clients do that. If you want to eat that way, cool. I can help you do that and help you do it better in a way that's sustainable and consistent for you long term. So we do that by helping them change their outlook and their mindset. Right. Get away from all or nothing thinking this is good. This is bad. Like moralizing food behavior. When you start moralizing food, that ends up taking down a slippery slope. Right. So we really work on that mindset piece, focusing on consistency, focusing on progress, not perfection. Right, things of that nature that help people view it through a different lens. So even if they end up changing, maybe they end up shifting gears over time and they go from eating paleo to eating plant-based, they do so in a way where they understand that the fundamental practices still apply. Right? They might just change the food sources, but they're still focusing on quality of foods, they're still focusing on you know, appetite and hunger awareness, and they're still focusing on consistency and progress, not perfection. So you can teach those skills. And even if people's desires and goals change, which they do over time for various reasons, you've helped them eat that, eat a certain way where they can apply those skills regardless of how their life circumstances change. Brian, one of the things that you talk about is the the disparity between the people's, when they're trying to lose weight or trying to lose fat, their expectations for what they, the amount of fat that they're going to lose mm-hmm. and what they actually lose when they, as far as they're concerned, they're doing, they're moving as much as they should be and they are the calories they're intaking or kilojoules they're intaking within a certain range and they're not getting the results that on paper they think they should be getting. So you call this the human, well, you talk about the, the calorie conundrum, human metabolism and the calorie conundrum. So what is the conundrum? Well, part of the conundrum is, you know, when you hear about, and a lot of researchers make this mistake too, or in, in books you'll see stuff like, oh, if you cut out you know, a piece of gum, one piece of toast a day, you'll lose 10 pounds in a year, right? Because they do out some calorie math. It's like, well, by that token, if I cut out one piece of toast and I lose 10 pounds in a year, man, after 10 years, I could lose 100 pounds, right? If you just keep extrapolating that, at some point, you will just disappear. (laughs) So when you take a step back and you really think about that, that math, it just, 
doesn't, it's not how it works, right? Because the human body is an adaptive organism. It's not a machine, right? It's dynamically responding to the inputs and the outputs. It's not, you know, people often conflate, you know, food as fuel. And, and part of the purpose of, of food is to provide fuel, but it does so much more than that. Because we rebuild ourselves from the food. Our cars don't rebuild themselves from gasoline, right? So the calorie conundrum is really showing that you know, conventional calorie math, like calories in, calories out works, right? It's a fundamental law of human metabolism. However, it's just not incredibly well understood, right? It's more complex. It's more interconnected. When you affect calories in by eating less or eating more, you're going to impact calories out. Like those, those are not mutually exclusive. They influence each other. So when you increase calories in or you decrease calories out, your body's going to respond to that, to try to adapt to that change in intake. And not everyone's response is the same. And it's not like this perfect response. You can always maintain a stable weight, but it's your body's attempt to maintain homeostasis, right? So it definitely will try to adapt if you decrease your intake. And we can only measure intake so well, right? Our, our measurement tools are relatively limited. Unless you can go live in a hermetically sealed chamber, our, you know, our, our measurements are only as accurate as our tools. And our tools are, are pretty limited at this point. So when you realize that, that there's limitations on how we actually measure calories in, right? It's based on food averages and there's actually a pretty big range. They allow a 20 to 25% error rate on food labels, when you realize stuff like that and people's GI tract, we're learning more and more about the bacteria in our GI tract. We know just enough to be dangerous at this point, in my view. I mean, but even if you look at all the things we're learning, it hasn't even changed. The fundamental recommendations stay the same, right? But we're learning different things about the different bacteria cause us to absorb fewer or more calories. So when you're trying to measure, oh, I ate 3,000 calories, you might not have absorbed 3,000 calories, right? Mm-hmm. Because your, your food labels could have been inaccurate. Different bacteria that you have changes what you absorb and how you absorb it. Different types of foods you ate, right? If you ate lots of minimally processed whole foods, fiber-rich foods, you'll actually absorb fewer of those calories, right? Lots of plant foods because their cell walls are tough to break down, right? I'm sure, not to get TMI, but anytime you eat corn or walnuts, you see evidence the next day, right? They didn't all get absorbed. When you eat lots of highly processed foods, they're basically pre-digested for you. So you extract more of the calories they contain. So the calories in, calories out part, it works when they've tested it in really controlled conditions and they can really have quality measurements like in, like I said, those hermetically sealed chambers and they really control all the food intake and they measure everything. We know calories in, calories out is the big picture determinant of weight, weight change. However, trying to accurately measure that in the real world is really difficult and we would argue unnecessary for most people to make progress. So we have a different approach that we use with people. For the most part, we can measure macros and calories and stuff like that. We try to steer away from doing too much complicated math to eat because the math never really works out exactly as you might anticipate because of some of the measurement errors, because of the interconnectivity, and because that conventional calorie math, oh, cut out 500 calories a day, you lose a pound a week, Right now, lose 50 pounds in a year. Well, and you're not going to lose that in perpetuity, right? There's an adaptation response. So you'll still lose weight. It's not to, not to suggest you can't lose weight, but we can help set better expectations for progress by knowing how the process actually works. And it's your body's going to adapt and, and make that deficit a little smaller, so you'll lose a little bit slower, but you can still make excellent progress. So it's about setting better expectations, recognizing the limits of our measurement tools, and then, you know, focusing on behaviors and things we can control because you can't control the weight change, right? You can only control the actions that lead you there. Okay, so I mean, that was the sort of the energy in kind of side of the, the conundrum that, yeah, just because you're putting the, these what you, you think is a certain amount of calories into your body, 
it doesn't mean your body's actually absorbing that amount. Then there's the energy outside of the equation as well. So there are a few factors that affect that as well. Sure. Yeah. I mean, there's basically four factors of the energy output, right? There's your resting metabolic rate, which is how many calories you burn just by being alive, right? You could lay on a couch all day and not move, and that's going to make up, depends on the person, but about 60 to 70% of your calorie needs, right? And that's mostly determined by your organs, right? Your brain, your liver, your kidneys, your respiration, your lungs. Those are your big, big, hungry, calorie-hungry organs. So can you think yourself then? Can you, you think yourself your, then? Your uh, not quite. Not quite. If only that were so. You can think yourself into a lot of things, though. That's a whole other conversation. But generally, those organs are really energy-hungry. And you have muscle tissue, obviously, bone tissue, your digestion, right? And there's a whole bunch that go into it. But for the most part, that makes up the vast majority of the calories you burn in a day. And then, of course, it's variable, though. Some people might uh, use a lot more through physical activity. It's one of the other four components, right? And that's obviously variable depending on how much and how long and how intensely you exercise. There's the thermic effect of eating, which is the calories you burn just by digesting and absorbing the foods that you eat, which varies a little bit depending on what you're actually eating. If you eat more protein, you burn more calories just from eating more protein. But on the whole, it's relatively limited. I mean, the thermic effect of eating only makes up about 5 to 10% of your calorie output. And then there's my favorite component, and that's what's called NEAT, which is non-exercise activity thermogenesis. Really, it's like any type of movement that's not purposeful exercise. So pacing, fidgeting, maintaining posture, mm-hmm. things of that nature. And this is a hugely variable component. And this is where what I was getting at too when I was talking about the lack of our precision in terms of measurement tools. How do you really measure your calorie output from NEAT? Right? You can wear your Fitbit tracker or your Apple Watch and, and get a relative idea of how many calories you burn mm-hmm. through physical activity, though even those are not within 20% of your actual calories burned. So that's got limitations too. But neat output can vary dramatically by up to like a thousand calories per person or more per day. For effectively doing the same actions or non-specific incidental activity. Yeah. So basically, I guess, so let's say, let's say you and I were the same height, weight, age, you know, all those anthropometric characteristics and our resting metabolic rate was 2,000 calories a day. Well, that can actually vary by 15%. We didn't even get into that part from various genetic reasons, different small changes to like the FTO gene, for example. But neat output is basically how much you might pace or fidget and move around in a day. We might do the same workouts together. We might eat the same food together, right? So theoretically, we should get the same results. But if you're someone who's, right, not a pacer, not a fidgeter, you just kind of chill, sit back and relax. Whereas you could be like my, my cousin, my roommate in college, who literally never stopped moving. We'd be watching a movie, he'd be flicking his toes together, right? We'd be listening to music, he's like dancing around the room. The man has never stopped moving a day in his life, and he's incredibly, incredibly lean. Even if we ate the same way and trained the same way, he would probably be leaner than me because of how much he burns through NEAT. And you see some really interesting research on this when they've like overfed people by a thousand calories a day. And there was one guy, this was over like eight weeks, and there was one guy that only gained 0.79 pounds. He was eating 1,000 extra calories over the, every day for the course of eight weeks. So in theory, he should have gained 16 pounds, right? But he actually burned an extra 692 calories every day by increasing his NEAT output, right? So these people were in a metabolic ward. Everything was really controlled, and they tried, checked all kinds of things to see what led to the differences in weight gain because one poor woman actually gained 9.3 pounds, right? Or what's that about four, a little over four kilos. Mm. So, right. I can do the math, you know, so she gained a significant amount of weight compared to that other guy because her neat output actually went down. All that extra food made her feel lethargic, 
right? So she actually paced and fidgeted and moved less. She actually burned 98 fewer calories from her neat than her baseline, whereas the other guy burned 692 calories extra. So he gained he, almost 70% of those excess calories he burned just through pacing, fidgeting, not through actual mm. physical exercise. So that neat output can make a huge difference, and it's a really hard thing to like actually measure or track. Mm. So people get really frustrated. Ah, oh, you know, this, this calculator said... I should eat 1,600 calories a day, I know, and I'll be at a 500-calorie deficit, and I should be losing X, Y, or Z. I'm not losing anything, and my friend's losing a pound and a half a week, and we're working out together, and we're eating, following the same eating plan. What the hell? And they get all frustrated that, that you know, it's, can't, I, I must be broken, or it must be because of the carbs, or it must be because of X, Y, or Z. So and it's one of the things we really try to get people to recognize is, yes, you can, you can do calorie math and track those things, but don't take them as gospel, right? Because those numbers are, again, our measurement tools are only as, or our measurements are only as accurate as our tools. And we don't have great tools to measure things like that in the real world. And it can make a huge difference in your results. So we tend to get people to focus on behaviors and things they can control, right? Let's focus on that. And then as the coach, you help look at the results and the outcomes. Is this moving you towards your goal? Yes or no, right? How can we adjust it and help you do it differently? So we use, you know, we, you should still keep in mind as a coach the energy balance equation. But unless your client is really advanced, we don't necessarily encourage them to overly focus on the calories, right? You have some people who are really number oriented, if they're an engineer or an accountant, and they really love playing with numbers and they can do so sanely and objectively. Cool, by all means, like leverage the skills and strengths of your clients. But in our experience, for most, that's not the direction we would go because it can just lead to weird disconnects, you know, cognitive dissonance between, oh, I think I should be losing X and I'm only losing Y and I must be broken or something's wrong or F this, I'm done, right? I'm moving on to the next thing. So that's the experience we see when people get too locked into the numbers because the numbers are, as much as I love math, right? I was an engineering major before I switched to nutrition. I I love math. They don't add up really well for most people in the real world because our tools are so limited. So the human element always throws a spanner in the works, right? Always, right? Humans are complex. We have real lives, right? We're, we have Our physical outcomes are affected by our emotions, our behaviors, not just through human physiology, right? So whenever I talk, I always share this really cool slide that shows all these things that influence the energy balance equation. Because so often as fitness pros, we really hyper-focus on like the physiology, the macros, right? Hormones, and don't give enough credence or just don't recognize or realize all of the other things, right? Your activity environment, social psychology, your personal ethnicity and cultural background, food production environment, media, other psychological issues. I mean, there's a whole list of other influences that go outside just the physiology. So we teach coaches to use or look at clients through what we'd call like a biopsychosocial lens. So the biological component, yeah, the physiology, the macros, then look at the psychological component, thoughts, feelings, emotions, mental well-being, right? And the social component, how good of a, how supportive is their environment, right? Is this going to challenge their own personal identity and beliefs? Oftentimes you see, well, I'm a mom. I, you know, I take care of everyone else. I don't take care of me, right? And that can actually make it a challenge for them to take care of themselves. It's a, it challenges their own identity about who they are and what they do. So looking at things through that, that larger lens where you're looking through multiple components really helps you to, to coach a whole person, right? To recognize that humans are messy and complicated and we're not... We're not machines where you just input numbers and the numbers get spit out and voila, you know, you've, weight loss has occurred. So it feels more like you're getting into almost sort of psychological territory here where 
people that are coming to you that's coming for nutrition advice and they might just be hoping to get a nice simple leading plan i'm just going to do that how are people responding when when they're being given more of a sort of a thorough kind of personality evaluation yeah. and kind of a more holistic approach to to the way they live oh i think part of it is setting the expectations from the outset about what your coaching is and what you're doing and sometimes people just want like hey i just want something really simple to follow you can do that too right but i think you have to set expectations appropriately so in our experience, most people are actually pretty happy once they realize that you're not just looking at them as a data set, right? You're looking at them as, as a human being who has wants and needs and ambivalence, right? Conflicting goals. I want to do X, but I also want to do Y. So how can you help them, you know, navigate through that? So in our experience, sometimes there's initial resistance. Like, what do you mean? I don't just get a, a plan. I just want a plan. Just tell me what to do. Well, we're going to get there. We're going to be working through a plan together. We're going to do it by you know, recognizing all the things that influence your decisions. We can put together like a, a more concrete approach from the outset if that's going to make you feel more comfortable. So you always want to meet clients where they're at, right? Oftentimes clients want think they want a meal plan or something really concrete mm -hmm. to follow. But then you also know they do best when you, when you have like a behavior-based model where they're building skills through daily practices. So how can you... Find that middle ground when you have clients who really want that plan. Well, you can give them some more concrete things, right? And we do that with like hand portions. We do that through other means. But you can kind of meet in the middle there and have something that's more of a template. So is this what you call the meal transformation? Yeah, exactly. So right, we do that to meal transformation. Or if they're a little bit more advanced or they're looking, they're really pressing for a plan, right, we'll give them more of like a personalized template they can follow and flesh out. Not necessarily a rigid plan, but at the same time combining it with like that behavior and skill-based kind of coaching where we work on you know, one kind of thing at a time. Let's really work on protein. Now you got this plan, but let's really work on protein. Let's work on some veggies, right? And next week we're working on eating slowly until satisfied. And maybe we start working on sleep and stress. Because people often think, oh, it's the food, right? The food is the problem. When we look at some of our own internal data, like we ask people on their intake form, you know, what are your biggest nutritional challenges? Almost no one puts, I don't know what to eat. Right? It's only 16% of people actually put that. The biggest one, far and away, is emotional and stress, stress eating. 61% of people put that as their biggest nutritional challenge. Right? So if you're just giving people a plan, how does that address you know, eating based on stress and emotion? Right? That's, that's not physiology. That's psychology or even social components all kind of rolled into one. So it's always important to look at people through a, a larger, more comprehensive perspective. But again, if they're really pushing for a plan, you can, you can meet them halfway give them a little bit more of a template they can follow and flesh out while still working on the behaviors and skills that you know from your experience and from research is going to help them get where they want to go. Interesting talking about the meals and the, the, the strategies that people can put into place. It feels like we're living in an era where it's never been easier to get, you know, to, <laughs> if, you're not, if you feel like you want to treat yourself, you've had a hard day, Uber is going to deliver you exactly what you want within the next half an hour. You don't even need to think about cooking yourself a nutritional meal or preparing anything that, where you know the, the nutrition content of it. Is this sort of proving quite problematic? So one of the things that dramatically changed my coaching approach mm. was when I started working at Precision Nutrition and I was talking to Dr. Krista Scott-Dixon at PN, who's like this brilliant, brilliant woman. We, did, we spoke to Krista a couple of years ago. Oh, did, yeah, Krista's, podcast, yeah, Krista's unbelievable. And so she dropped this line that I'd never heard before. And she said, like, all human behavior is an attempt to solve a problem. And I was like, well, what do you mean? She's like, well, just take a step back and, and think about it. Like, okay, why do you do X, Y, or Z? It's usually to solve something, cope with something, right? Why did you have three glasses of wine at dinner? 
Well, it helped me kind of relax and feel good. It was providing something. It was solving something for me. When you start looking at human behavior through that lens as a coach, and it changes your whole perspective. Rather than looking at clients, well, why do they keep you know, having ice cream at night or keep having the three glasses of wine? It's not because they don't know that. Exactly. People know that that's not a great thing to do. We don't make a lot of decisions just based on logic, right? It's solving something for them. It's providing something for them. So when you start looking at things through that lens, you go, okay, well, what is this solving for my client? Right? What is this? This makes sense to them in this moment for some reason. Right, so let's unpack that a little bit. Let's have that conversation. I mean, oftentimes when you point out to clients that it's actually doing something for them, it may not be a great long-term solution, right? But you know, having the three glasses of wine helps them unwind from the day, manage their stress, feel better. It is providing a temporary benefit, you know, at a long-term cost. Sure, when you start unpacking that with clients, they recognize. You know, oftentimes, they don't realize why they're doing it. They just feel better after. When you start unpacking those things. It's mind-blowing for a lot of clients. And then they can, you can start working with them to build other stress and coping skills. And they'll start eating less ice cream, drinking less alcohol, without you having to say, you know, hey, you're going to start drinking less alcohol. You really shouldn't have that ice cream at night, right? So you can achieve those things without making it feel like you're taking things away because you're providing other skills and coping mechanisms to help deal with those issues. And then they don't need the alcohol and the ice cream as much. Now, you can still have it on occasion, of course. That dramatically changed my coaching approach. And it just helped me view, not not even just the psychological component, just view humans differently, right? And not have such a judgmental, like, oh, why do they keep doing this? It's such a pain in my ass, right? When then you realize, well, it's providing something for them. It is solving something for them. So let's figure that out together. What is that solving? And how can we use other better long-term strategies to solve that problem and that'll just fundamentally change your coaching approach i mean brian you you also work with athletes and i guess a large component of that is is meal planning and preparation and guidance with with regards to nutrition it's probably a different set of challenges there because you've got different goals and you're working with athletes who probably have the mindset that puts more and more in the in you know they're not having to cut down on the wine and the ice cream so much they're already in, the, in a place where they can do that so it's a, a different kind of different skill set there you might think so <laughs> yeah you might also be surprised oftentimes in my experience a lot of the best athletes get to the top because they were always the best athlete at their sport right not be, in spite of their dietary <laughs> intake right they were they're young they've been able to recover and, and do really well even without fueling and recovering appropriately then oftentimes as they start to age as athletes or they realize like, hey, I finally got into this league. I am. I think I'm going to be here for 10 years. And they're three years in and they're like, I'm about to get cut, man. I'm about to get released. What can I do? Right. Well, now, they'll, now they'll start focusing on, all right, can I eat better? Can I sleep better? And oftentimes some of the best athletes are the ones who have done this the most. Like Tom Brady is probably the ultimate example in the U.S., right? He's the reasons for his nutrition approach, we can debate all day, but the fact that he follows it so consistently and is so aware of eating well and, and sleeping and managing his stress and doing all those fundamental practices has made, been a big reason for maintaining his success for so long. So what, for, with athletes, honestly, there's often a lot of the same challenges, just in a slightly different way. So oftentimes they're not preparing their own meals, but you've got to help them have tools to have those meals prepared. So there's a little bit more, and you can often do, like with, with most clients, we teach, like, oh, just do one thing at a time, right? Because you can so make it actionable and manageable in their real lives. With athletes, you can often do a little bit more because they're so used to being coached. They're so used to getting instruction and direction. In my experience, and I've worked with quite a few teams, individual athletes, 
it's a lot of the same nutrition questions. Hey, I heard about keto from my buddy on Instagram. Right, I heard about this. I heard about that. Mm-hmm. Right, there's nothing inherently wrong with keto. But they hear a lot of the same things and they have a lot of the same questions that, you know, quote unquote, regular people have. So oftentimes it's, it's just helping to ensure they're meeting their energy needs. Right, they're getting in. We're actually getting in some vegetables. It's honestly a lot of the same stuff, just packaged a slightly different way. We can do it a little faster. We can do it. We'll get to the, the template a little more quickly, like I was getting at before, because they're just so used to following coaching and getting instruction, and they can put more attention on it oftentimes than other people who just have more complicated lives, a little more all over the place. So, I mean, it's it often... When I first started working with high-level athletes, that was my anticipation, right? Oh, they're going to be like kicking ass. I'm going to do all kinds of complex things with them. That has not been my experience, right? I've worked with four different, five different organizations, many, many individual high-level athletes. Some of them, absolutely. Especially ones that have come to me later in their career that I've worked with, they're already doing really well. And then we start tinkering with the margins a little bit, right? We'll do some more advanced strategies or really play with a few things. But for most, most athletes and most teams I've worked with, we're still hammering those fundamentals, right? Because those fundamentals are, allow, are what allow you to now play with the margins. You can't do those things until that fu- those fundamentals are in place. You can't maximize you know, that 1% to 3% boost until you're consistently doing other things because that 1% to 3% boost won't even occur if you're not getting enough protein or getting enough fluid, right? Getting enough water to meet your hydration needs, right? The things that really impact your performance over the long term. So, so that, that 1% to 3% is where you're getting into the foundational principles of performance nutrition territory, really? So, I mean, I would say, no, when you're playing with the margins, that 1% to 3%, that's after you've okay. like mastered the fundamentals okay, of performance so. nutrition, right? So that's when you get to like, you know, do like fun, cool things that sound really sexy and compelling. Now, we're doing carb cycling, nutrient timing, right? We're playing with you know some high level supplements and seeing what what happens you know we're really playing with okay this like i'm working with a high level triathlete right now and she's training like 30 hours i mean just and she's an ironman triathlete so i mean crazy amounts of volume so we're, we were playing with you know her intra workout nutrition whether it's gels or liquids and seeing how how things play out in her performance and her recovery but we get to see get better data on that because her other intake is so consistent right she's getting enough protein she's getting in some veggies She's hitting her calorie needs. Then we can play with the other stuff, and it gives us a more reliable outcome because it's not being affected by, oh, I had McDonald's this day. I had that that day. I didn't even eat that morning before my run. Right? When they're not being consistent with the fundamentals, it makes it really hard to play with those margins because your, your, your data, like, again, those measurement tools, right, get all skewed. So you get to only really play with those, with those margins when you have those strong fundamentals consistently in place. Okay. Brian, look at a lot of the listeners to this podcast personal trainers and you know there's there's a scope you, you can only work within a, a certain scope when it comes to to nutrition with clients before you're you're needing to refer them to to nutritionists or dietitians what are some some of the most common areas that personal trainers and fitness professionals will be encountering with clients in terms of nutritional requests that that they are able to actually assist uh-huh. with <laughs> right well that that's that's the great question because oftentimes you'll get asked to like write a meal plan and that's generally outside scope Right, unless you have other qualifications that make that okay. And so one, that's one of the reasons why we really try and coach the way we coach is you can do like behavior-based coaching, skill-based coaching, and it's most certainly within your scope of practice. So that's where, you know, rather than saying, hey, here's your meal plan, hey, here are, here are your macros that I calculated for you, you know, it's when you can run into some, some issues with it being like prescribing. So you always want to stay away from like medical nutrition therapy or diagnosing or prescribing things, but you can teach 
fundamental like behavior-based coaching, right? So, hey, let's, let's work on eating slowly, right? And we'll work on eating until satisfied, work mm-hmm. on those practices for a few weeks. We build the skill of hunger and appetite awareness. And maybe we'll start working on, okay, let's start working on getting a, what we would call like a palm of protein at every meal, right? Mm-hmm. A palm-sized portion that's going to give you, you know, 20 to 30 grams of protein at each sitting, and it's a, a good fundamental practice for people to get enough protein to make them feel satisfied between meals, right? To boost muscle building, boost fat burning. We work on fists of vegetables, cupped handfuls of carbohydrates, thumbs of fats, mostly like zero calorie beverages or low calorie beverages. So we'll work on those fundamental those pieces. We would consider that all working on building a larger skill of like a food quality and, and portion control, right? So those are your fundamental practices to build that skill. And then you might move on to sleep and to stress or, you know, what have you. There's lots of different directions you can go, but you can always keep it broad enough where it's not like this prescribe and and treat kind of approach, but concrete enough where a client can check it off as done. Yep, I had a palm of protein. No one's going to suggest eating a palm of protein is harmful or or medical nutrition therapy, right? Or eating a fist of vegetables. So when you focus on behavior-based coaching, like on skills and daily practices, and you get away from, hey, here's a plan, here's some specific, ultra-specific numbers you got to hit, that's where you can kind of run into problems. So when you focus on coaching behaviors, helping people stay accountable, right, those are the kind of coaching things you can do just about anywhere and not run into any type of concerns, unless they have, like, specific medical conditions. Sure. So you always want to make sure, right, always that should be part of your initial assessment to make sure you don't have to refer anything out or to just get medical permission for whatever type of coaching you're doing. But for the most part, you're pretty safe with behavior-based coaching, absolutely. And that would include simple requests like keeping a food diary? Sure. If people want to do like a food log, absolutely. You, know, you want to see what they're eating to get a sense of you know, where you can help them, especially if you're working on food quality. Mm-hmm. Hey, are we progressing up that continuum a little bit, right? Maybe they're eating mostly processed foods. How can we take that up a little bit of a notch, right? Can we make that a little bit less processed, and then a little bit less processed. But you're not focusing on ultra-specific things or getting too nitty-gritty into like, oh, well, you should really have broccoli here instead of this, or you should really have... Like, no, man, should, they should just have vegetables, and they can flesh it out however they see fit, right, whatever vegetables they want to eat. So a food log can be fine. We tend to steer people away from doing too many food logs as a coaching practice for what we consider most, most level one clients, which would be like regular, your normal eaters, because food logs can often give a sense of like being judged. Oh, I got to fill this out for my coach who's like super fit and eats so, so well. Right? I want to put on their best self. So food logs can be a d- bit of a double-edged sword. Like, yes, it's good to gather data. And you always want to make clear like, hey, I'm just, you know, I'm just doing this just to gather a baseline to help me help you, right? But clients can often feel you know, human nature, like they're going to be judged based on the quality of their food, right? So and that, and it's not always a perfect reflection of what they're eating, but even still, it can be helpful. Like, hey, I wondered how come you had this here? What, what were you thinking? Oh, I noticed you you said you didn't feel great when you ate this this day. Is that a consistent pattern kind of thing? So you can point out larger patterns. I think that can be more helpful than individual foods. Like, hey, I noticed you know in days you mentioned where you're less stressed or you don't have as many work meetings, you're able to do right X, Y, or Z. How can we replicate more of that? Right? How can we do that on days when you still have meetings? So try to look for, for larger patterns or things they're already doing well that you can build upon rather than pointing out all the areas you think they can improve. You still want to point out things they can improve, sure, because you can work on them, but leverage skills and strengths even from like a food log for sure. And then it makes it feel less judgmental, less judgy. Hmm. 
Brian, thank you so much for talking with the Fitness Industry Podcast. I mean, fat loss is obviously, you know, it's it's the bread and butter, as it were, of of a lot of PTs trade. A lot of their clients are asking for their services to help them with fat loss. So I think the more the trainers can learn about it and the techniques and the strategies, as you say, without necessarily prescribing meal plans, but you know, the everything else around that, the more they can learn, the better. So thank you so much for sharing that with us today. If people want to learn anything more about what you do and about precision nutrition, where can they go? Yeah, the best place would be to go to like precisionnutrition.com, right? We have we have coaching for clients, we have certifications for fitness professionals such as, you know, you guys listening to the show. We have coaching software you can license and use once you're like doing one of our certifications. So there's lots of things there. Then it's obviously our blog, tons of free content, infographics, videos to use for your own coaching practice or with your own clients. You can check us out on Instagram. I don't remember what our Instagram <laughs> Instagram uh, name is. I'm not big on not on social media a whole lot. You can check us out on Facebook, on Instagram. Just search for Precision Nutrition. And it'll come right up. But PrecisionNutrition.com would be a great place to learn more or on social media. Either one would be a great, great place. Brian, thanks again. Thank you for having me, Ollie. I appreciate it. For a huge range of online nutrition courses, including Networks Nutrition Intensive by Dr. Rebecca Reynolds, accredited for CECs and other continuing education points, go to the Network website, select the Courses tab, and click on Nutrition. The Nutrition Intensive modules include Nutrition Strategies for Strength and Size, Fueling Fat Loss, and Effective Nutrition Coaching. Network members save up to 30%, so head to fitnessnetwork.com.au today to grow your skill set and fitness career. And for an amazing weekend of face-to-face learning, be sure to register for Filex, the main event on the fitness industry calendar at filex.com.au.